Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about professionals using the iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chadden, host of the show. And in order to measure the signal strength of your Wi-Fi to see your coverage, you usually have to use a MacBook or other products, which I do. There are software mapping systems that will tell you what devices are connected to your network, but the iOS airport utility, if you put it in scan mode, will actually measure the physical radio strength from the access points. They're both exchanging data and it has the ability to see that data by talking to the driver and talking to the Ethernet circuitry in your iOS device. Today in the show is Robert, owner of doitforme.solutions. We dive into all things home automation and control, as well as home networking. Before we get to that topic in that interview, I just want to share this quick tip, or in this case, more of a recommendation with you. Recommendation is to try using Siri app suggestions a bit more. You can get to this by hitting command space when you're hooked up to an external keyboard. This pulls up the search interface, but also a few apps that your iPad thinks you might want to open next. You can, from there, instantly hit enter to open the first recommendation, or use the arrow keys to select a different app and hit enter to open that one. I found that the recommendations are getting better and better for me, and that more often than not, I'm able to hit just command space and then hit enter and hop right into the app that I was going to go search for anyways. So give that a go. I use this a lot with opening Google Hangouts as I do that a lot during my workday. But it's also pretty smart about protecting other apps that I want to open based on my current behavior. For example, if I'm in Safari, it knows I want to go to a different app next. It's getting smarter and smarter about learning my behavior. And I'd just give that a try if you haven't in a while. So hit Command Space, then see what it has. You can hit Enter or use the arrow keys to get around. So that's my quick recommendation of this episode. And a quick reminder to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It does a great deal to help others discover the podcast, and I'd really appreciate if you could spend just a minute or two to leave a quick review. Thanks to everyone that has done so already. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. With that, let's get to my interview with Robert. I'm here today with Robert Spivak of doitforme.solutions. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Welcome. So your specialty is home automation, and I want to have you on the show to talk a little bit about that in the context of iPads and what can be done from an iPad to kind of manage your home, as well as, uh, in your case, uh, your business, uh, which you do a fair amount of from your iPad Pro as well. So the first thing I want to dive into is the, the notion of a smart home and what that is. Exactly. Well, actually, the field of home automation has been around for over 30 or 40 years. The difference has been the evolution with new technology to be much more affordable and reachable for more than just the very high end. From my point of view, there's really two things to understand, and it's a subtle difference. Home control versus home automation. And home control is the ability to operate things in your home interactively from your phone, from your iPad, from a computer. The most typical examples are turning lights on and off, dimming lights, using uh, video doorbells and security cameras. And the other aspect of it is controlling things automatically. So having things done for you without even reaching for your phone. The prototypical example is having your outdoor landscape lights come on automatically when it gets dark and turn off 
before sunrise. Right, and I've had setups where my lights would turn on as I enter the apartment when I lived alone, which made sense in that use case. And when you add computerization, you get to do more interesting things. For example, a lot of people want their lights to come on a half an hour before sunset. So when you were using a mechanical timer or a simple approach, you'd have to go around and reprogram everything based on the time of the year. But with a full smart home system, it can adjust automatically and go out and find out the current daylight hours or sunrise and sunset and make those adjustments for you on the fly. The key to a smart home is it encompasses several different things. Convenience, turning things on and off without getting up or without having to think about it. But it also encompasses other areas, for example, helping aging parents or elderly people do things when they're physically challenged. Sometimes we forget a lot of people can't get up out of a chair if you broke a leg, if you have uh, other injuries. Being able to turn your lights on, operate your television, answer the front door and do all of that without having to get up and be very uncomfortable. Another side of that, of course, is voice control, which is extremely popular. So some of us may have lack of mobility in our hands or being able to, with arthritis or other things, not being able to manipulate a phone easily, being able to just issue a command by voice from anywhere in a room or anywhere in a home can be a lifesaver. What are some of the not as well-known smart home products out there that you know, or iPad centrics, you know, totally work with the iPad and uh, just aren't as well known. Well, one of the products that I use myself personally that is iPad centric, it's a very interesting product. It's called Simple Control. It's a application focused on home entertainment, audio, video control, your TV, your stereo. But over the years, they've been very Apple centric and they did a major update this past fall where they incorporated compatibility with HomeKit. So it has the ability to really be an alternative user interface for HomeKit. And it takes a different approach rather than a device-centric approach. Here's a light, turn it on, turn it off. They present a dashboard of your overall home and each room in your home and present in each screen the available devices. So if you're watching TV, in addition to manipulating your cable or satellite box, there's a strip of smart devices on the bottom where you can open and close the blinds, adjust the lighting, adjust the sound. Those HomeKit-oriented activities that make sense in the context of a bigger picture. It's really a vertical application in the sense that it's really focused on home entertainment. It has the ability to control a lot of different uh, home audio equipment. It, it works with third-party hardware. They provide a version of it called a blaster, which is a, a network to infrared converter. So it's a little handheld device that can control legacy devices like CD players or other amplifiers or cable boxes that don't have network control or what is known as sure. internet protocol control. What it does that I like is it has the ability to actually synchronize your devices with HomeKit, but also with other products. It works directly with Lutron lighting controls. It works directly with a Logitech devices. It works with a lot of different devices and acts as sort of a, a super interface. It's not just HomeKit. It can bring in Nest thermostats. 
and other devices that probably will never be HomeKit compatible. So on your screen, you can touch the thermostat temperature controls and turn the heat up or down, and you don't have to know, oh, this is HomeKit, I need to go to that app, or this is Lutron, I need to go to that app. It acts as just a unified control point. That's wonderful. One of my biggest frustrations with this whole home stuff is I got a Nest in the early days before HomeKit was a thing, and now I don't want to buy a new thermostat because it's a nice thermostat, but I would really love that being HomeKit. But uh, it sounds like you know at least you can get a nice interface to to rope in all those things you bought before HomeKit was a thing, or maybe there's a lower-cost product out there that you're just, let me just do this instead. Sure. In general, ideally, I recommend buying products that are compatible with, quote, the big three, which is Apple HomeKit, Google Home Assistant, and Amazon Alexa. And we're finding more and more manufacturers see that as table stakes. So fortunately, when you look at the box of a product or research it online, they're very often going to have all three logos listed. That way, you're compatible with the major systems and have the most flexibility so that your hardware won't become obsolete as quickly. From a security angle, do you know HomeKit? I've heard that is better from that angle and hacking and stuff like that. How much truth is there in, in that statement? There is certainly some real basis for that, specifically when HomeKit was first brought out. HomeKit has a hardware encryption chip, which prevents hacking and falsification of control. They recently went to a software system to allow more products to be compatible. But one thing to keep in mind, which is really the Achilles heel is any product that has more than just HomeKit compatibility and even purely HomeKit products tend to have an app from the manufacturer either to do the initial setup a little differently than HomeKit or provide accessibility to options that HomeKit doesn't support. As soon as you have any other app or interface into the hardware, you have the potential for a parallel access. So a device that says it's both compatible with HomeKit and Alexa, if there's a hacking path coming in through Alexa, it's still vulnerable. Or if there's a manufacturer app to change the, the video mode, if it's a IP camera to set the resolution, which can't be done directly in HomeKit, then that app could be hacked. And am I right in thinking that even if you don't figure the Alexa component of that hardware, it's still kind of there? That varies from product to product. Some products may have software enabled even if you never configure it. And that's actually more dangerous. It might have a default password or it might be in a permanent setup mode that is more friendly for someone forcefully gaining control over it. So I do recommend actually testing and enabling every feature and then disabling them one by one for only the capabilities you're actually going to use. Of those ecosystems, that's kind of where everyone is, Google, Alexa, or HomeKit. And there are others that exist, I'm sure, like the Nest thermostat. Are those even compatible with the Google Assistant? Uh, I guess the newer ones would be. When looking at the different home systems, there's different layers of systems. HomeKit is a very complete system designed to do quite a lot, whereas Google Voice, Google Home Assistant, Amazon Alexa are more voice control systems that do home automation, but they're not as comprehensive. One of the big differences is automation that happens without you taking any action. With HomeKit, the automation takes place if you have an Apple TV or an iPad running as, quote, a hub, even though they don't like to call it that. Right, yeah. And then you get remote access, 
from the outside and you get automated routines, including geofence actions, all those automations or automated procedures require something running all the time to do it. With HomeKit, that's running locally in your home. With Amazon or Google, it's primarily cloud services. So those systems do what's a cloud-to-cloud linkage. In other words, one cloud system is talking to another cloud system, which is error-prone, reliability is an issue, and certainly security. With HomeKit, one of the biggest advantages that's often overlooked is even if you don't use Apple TV or leave an iPad on, HomeKit runs completely local. Most of HomeKit's day-to-day operations do not need any internet connection. Most other systems require an internet connection. Recently, there was a major outage of Samsung SmartThings, which is a more complete system, somewhat on par with HomeKit, but folks couldn't turn their lights on for eight hours because the SmartThings server was down for over eight hours. I do recognize sometimes uh, I'm not able to turn my uh, HomeKit lights on and off because that's because I switched Wi-Fi off accidentally at some point, and I can't talk because it's, uh, it's through the local network. Yes. Uh, the key to any home automation project is really a very, very reliable home network first. So you want to step back, and if your home network is kind of ad hoc and wasn't organized, you want to take a look at that and do two things. Run physical Ethernet wires everywhere you can. If you can, obviously in apartments or rental properties, you can't do that. And then secondly, take a look at your Wi-Fi coverage. If you've been using an inexpensive router or perhaps the one provided by your ISP cable or satellite or broadband company, it may be time to invest in a better Wi-Fi router. As far as managing your business... How does the iPad play a role in that for you? I do a combination of things. I I use the iPad primarily when I'm not at home in my office. So I typically use an app like Notability for taking notes when I'm with clients. So I can just write down and not worry about typing or being conscious of using the iPad and just interact with the client, listening to them as we discuss what they want, what they're trying to do. I do a lot of writing when I'm traveling about using Bear. I don't write books. I write articles. I write notes. I write Mm -hmm. small summaries. And I just take Bear and I get rid of all the Chrome. I use the command key to remove the sidebar. And it's just a nice blank screen, easy to write with. One of the surprising apps that I use, a lot of people aren't aware of, is I use Apple's airport utility. And I don't use Apple airport Wi-Fi systems anymore. But the Apple Airport Utility is the only iOS app that is allowed, because it's from Apple, to actually do low-level measurements of the Wi-Fi signal in your network. Huh. Because Apple bans direct access to the hardware of your Wi-Fi for security reasons. They don't allow other third-party apps to directly interface with the Wi-Fi circuitry. And in order to measure the signal strength of your Wi-Fi, to see your coverage, you usually have to use a MacBook or other products, and which I do. There are software mapping systems that will tell you what devices are connected to your network, but the iOS airport utility, if you put it in scan mode, will actually measure the physical radio strength 
from the access points. They're both exchanging data and it has the ability to see that data by talking to the driver and talking to the Ethernet circuitry in your iOS device. Now, unfortunately, it's not a graphical interface. It's just numbers. But if you if you hold your iPhone or your iPad and you walk around, you can see numbers which are in minus dB, which is the measurement used for radio signals. It's an arcane measurement, but it's a negative number, and you can see the signal strength and walk around with it. So in a pinch, that's helpful. I do tend to use a MacBook when I'm doing it more professionally and want to get maps and a lot more info on it. The other part of that is there used to be a, a great set of apps for iOS that would show you not only what devices are on your network, but identify them by the physical device serial number. Mm-hmm. which unfortunately has the name of Mac, M-A-C. Right, the Mac address, yeah. Which is actually the media access control. It has nothing to do with Apple. So normally every device on your network, a little bit of networking here, has what's called an IP address or an internet protocol address. This is a number that is assigned to it when it joins the network, but it's completely arbitrary, can change very often. The MAC address is burned into the hardware, much like a network serial number. So when you have the MAC address, you know exactly which specific piece of hardware is that device that you're looking at through your software applications, which iPhone, which computer, which laptop, which of several Hue lights, etc. Unfortunately, Apple banned recently the ability to use a protocol called Address Resolution Protocol, ARP, which converted IP addresses into MAC addresses to help you map out your network. So you used to be able to use these applications on iOS, which were really nice. They give you a list of all the devices in your network that are powered on at that moment, showing both the IP address and the MAC address. If you have a management screen on your router, on your Wi-Fi router, it can often show you that. Yeah. If you have... uh, non-iOS devices, you can still run that software. Here's a little anecdote. The rumor is the reason why that access was removed was because it was being abused by Uber. They were doing a lot of dirty tricks and they were tracking users because, again, this Mac ID is permanent. So they were detecting Mm, when someone from Apple and Cupertino was using the Uber app and showing them different information than when a normal user, so they could hide the fact that they were tracking users against Apple policy. Okay. Now back to the airport utility. I have the app open on my iPhone. Where do I go to enter that mode you were talking about? In the upper right-hand corner, you'll tap on where it says Wi-Fi scan. Huh. I do not have that as a thing. It may be an option you have to enable. Okay. You have to go to settings. Oh, yeah. Look at that. So, yeah, if you go into the settings application... Uh, not, you know, you have to turn that on. Uh, it says turning off the Wi-Fi scanner may help preserve battery life. So, uh, yeah, very cool. So it's now, now there. Awesome. Thank you. That very helpful. Well, I'm just so used to having it. Also, be sure and turn off the scan when you're done because normally to use it, you're in a continuous scan mode, which will eat your battery up very quickly. Oh, yeah. I can imagine it would. And that's why it's not able by default, I'm sure, too. Back to like managing your business. So you have some apps in your iPhone and iPad to help with this, and you're using for note-taking. Do you do invoicing through your Mac these days, or how, how is the billing and all that handled? I do most of my accounting through QuickBooks, and I use both the online web portal, and they do have an app that works fairly well on the iPad. But I, I tend to be at a desk most of the time when I'm doing that, so I will just 
typically use the iMac instead. Mm -hmm. There is one app I do use for the technology part that is just amazing. I discovered this recently, and it's an iPad or iPhone app, but it really works great on the iPad. It's called Magic Plan. And this app is an augmented reality app, and it allows you to build a floor plan, an indoor floor plan, purely by using the iPad and the camera and pointing it at the corners of a room and it will generate an actual architectural floor plan for you with very accurate measurements of the layout. Yeah, I have used this before and it is mind-blowing just how well it works. It's it's impressive. And what I do with Magic Plan is I, I generate just very simple floor plans. I'm not interested in diagrams of all the furniture, etc. And then I export that diagram into a an image file that I bring into a professional app, which is a, a Wi-Fi site survey system. It does have to run on a MacBook. It won't run on the iPad. And I use that to measure and do visual plots of all the signal strength. So basically that iOS airport utility on steroids with maps and with hotspots and clouds of coverage in different colors showing you all the Wi-Fi access points and signals. So running the floor plan with Magic Plan has saved me a lot of trouble because unless the map is calibrated with distance, you're not getting an accurate measurement of the reach and knowing how far Wi-Fi signal stretches you want that measurement calibrated against distance. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with clients, you'd, I'd imagine, be working on their devices. Yes. Usually we're setting up the app from the manufacturer and setting up HomeKit or a similar system. And some houses, to solve the problem of multiple people, especially visitors, guests, or sometimes kids that don't have iPhones, They may want to put an iPad on the coffee table or even mount an iPad on the wall. There are some professional mounts, frames that will hold an iPad to the wall and run the power inside the wall so it's all tucked away nice and neat. And then it becomes basically a button system on the wall Mm -hmm. that's virtual and much easier to operate and bring up any app, bring up any control, lights, heating entertainment. Very nice. Yeah. And a very uh, purpose-driven iPad at that point. And then with the iOS, the operating mode where you can put the iOS into what's called a um, kiosk mode, Mm -hmm. you can lock it so you never leave that foreground app and you can't press the home button to get back to the home screen. So it operates really foolproof for non-computer people. Yeah. That is a wonderful mode, especially for trade shows and other use cases like that, having it mounted on the wall. As apartment dwellers, as, uh, what would you recommend for those people as far as what they can automate and install without, you know, digging too much into trouble with their landlords? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Fortunately, there's a, a wide range of automation devices that are plug-in for lamps and lights. You can have plug-in switches and dimmers. You can, of course, have intelligent smart bulbs where the circuitry is in the base of the bulb itself, and you just screw it in to the light or the lamp. I'm not really a fan of those products normally, Mm -hmm. but in an apartment situation where you can't install uh, uh, in-wall switches or dimmers, they make a lot of sense. There's a lot of Bluetooth devices and Wi-Fi in terms of door sensors that are battery-operated and just attach the door with um, those foam mounting square 3M type tape that you use for... Uh, posters or pictures so it's easily removable. I think that's probably okay with landlords. 
It's not putting screws or holes in the wall. Yeah. The only thing you'll run into is if you did want to have a video doorbell or outside cameras, they do have to be mounted. But again, now you can find some battery-operated cameras with rechargeable batteries that mm-hmm. last quite a while. The Netgear Arlos do that. There's also the Blink cameras, which were recently bought by Amazon. So if you really want some security cameras and just can't put mounting holes or it's difficult, then a battery-operated camera may be better than nothing. Any final words on HomeKit or you know the iPad in general? In general, with HomeKit, It's not a panacea. It's not perfect. There's a lot of little things that will annoy you. So if you're going to get into home automation, especially at the DIY end of things, you have to have a very forgiving attitude. You have to be willing to tinker, willing to play around and put up with things that are not perfect, but the benefit outweighs the pain. Some little tiny thing doesn't work right and it annoys you and you want to throw your phone across the room (laughs) or you want to tear your hair out, then it might not be the right thing for you. (laughs) But that said, tons of people are enjoying it and experimenting. And the nice thing now is you don't have to go out and build a whole system. You can buy one device for $50 or $100, play with it, enjoy it, and then expand step by step. Okay. I call it the pain-based approach. Yeah. I don't put something in until it's a real pain in the butt and I'm really annoyed that I can't do something like turn the lights off when I without getting up or have the outside lights go on automatically. When it becomes too painful, then I spend $50 or $100 or a couple hundred dollars to automate it. Yeah, it's really cold in the morning, so I want to turn the heat on without getting out of bed. <laughs> that is uh, a great one for me. One final thing, I guess I, I should have asked you earlier. What's your setup like at your house? Well, I've got a, I've got a little bit of everything. I have several different lighting systems. I have a Google Home Assistant. I have eight Alexas in various forms: the tall ones, the little ones, the Echo Show with the video screen. I just added an Apple HomePod and experimenting with that for its home control and audio. We have some Sonos audio equipment, which is really nice for streaming music, about eight different IP cameras, both inside and outside, but only in public spaces. We have one lovingly we refer to as the doggy cam because it's mounted in the dog crate. So when we leave the home, we can watch our dog and see what he's doing, (laughs) making sure he's okay. Yeah. Of course, outdoor lighting is automated. A lot of door sensors I like to keep track of doors opening and closing and using that to trigger lighting scenes. So if I open the door to the backyard, the outdoor lights go on, which if we're letting the dog out at two in the morning is very helpful. (laughs) And also one of the things I've done, which is a little bit different, is in the garage I have two cameras so I can verify that the garage doors are open or closed. So rather than installing an official uh, garage door control system, I don't want to control my door I just want to see the status. Mm, So in that case, I use some low-resolution cameras. I don't really need to see my garage doors in 4K high-resolution. So rather than turning back after going to the store, I can pop on my phone and take a quick look. Do you have a favorite home automation product in your life? I think overall my favorite type of system is, is lighting controls and lighting automation Dark rooms are really annoying and being able to come home to a few lights being on 
and being able to control the lights without having to get up. And I've been working a lot with Lutron, mm-hmm. Lutron Automation, both the consumer version, which is called Cassetta, which is a really nice system, and doing more work now with kind of a prosumer version called Radio Raw to Select. So it really grows with you and uh, very reliable. A lot of lighting systems, you don't want to push a button and wait 10 seconds for the lights to come on or no. the lights to change. And uh, some of the people in my house are not that excited about home automation, so everything has to work, and it has to work by voice, it has to work by app, and it has to work by buttons. So for lighting, I put physical switches in a lot, both the real ones and battery-operated switches. The Lutron has a series called Picos and there are other uh, Logitech has the pop buttons. So you can do a lot with a physical button that you just set up routines and automation behind it. But people in your home just push a button and something happens. Yeah, a lot of them look exactly like a light switch would. But instead of going through wires, it's <laughs> that light switch is going over the Wi-Fi network. Yes, they have Wi-Fi. There are now some versions on Bluetooth. The first reaction some people have is, why would I spend 20 or $30 on a button when I can just use my iPhone or my iPad. It may be a first world problem, but a lot of people don't carry their phones with them all the time in their home. Yeah. And if you're sitting down and you're a guy and your phone is in your pocket, you have to stand up sometimes to dig the phone out of your pocket. (laughs) And it's just easier to have other ways to control things. The great thing with light switches are, uh, if it's a light bulb, you can always just like turn on and off a couple times and it'll be a normal light bulb again. Yeah. So flexibility in how you control things is is one of the uh, areas I like to advise clients with is don't just have one way to do something. Even you as an individual person may want to do it different ways, different times. Sometimes I'm sitting on the couch and I just use a voice command to turn a light on. Other times I don't want to disturb someone else. I just use my iPhone or use my iPad. So you may interact different ways at different times. Mm-hmm. So it's not just for different people. It's it's different ways even for the same person. Yeah. Now, where do you see home automation going in the next five, ten years? I think we'll continue to see a lot of increased automation. One of the big areas of activity is in the kitchen. We're seeing a lot of uh, automated appliances in the kitchen coming on stream to do things. We see automated appliances in the laundry room and ordering supplies, just keeping you apprised of their status. But the bigger picture where things are going is more intelligence. I mean, again, a lot of what we do today is home control, not home automation. I literally would like things to just happen on their own to figure out what I like to do, what my routines are, and have things happen on my behalf properly. Yeah, Nest tried that originally, and I disabled that feature because it just exactly yeah, it was not good. I'd say about sixty percent or more of anyone with a Nest thermostat just uses it as an interactive thermostat, which yep. is great mm-hmm. because it's a great thermostat for just access. Like yeah, <laughs> before Nest, no one could even set the thermostat to come on at a certain time and turn <laughs> no, off at no. another time. So no. don't get me wrong, that's a major breakthrough. But the AI aspect of learning who's at home and who's not and when you want the house warm and heated up an hour ahead of time, that isn't there yet. No. It just doesn't work right for most people. Yep, completely agree. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for your time this morning. It's been great chatting with you here. Well, thank you. I 
I enjoyed it and appreciate being able to share. Now, where can people find more information about uh, what you do with doitforme.solutions? The best way is to visit the website at www.doitforme.solutions. And from there, you can also find links to a Facebook page and Twitter handle and Instagram. And I do put out different information in each of those social channels. So depending on what you like to see, it's not just the same thing repeated everywhere. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of iPad Pros. You can find the show notes over at iPadPros.net. You can email me at iPadProsPodcast at gmail.com. Once again, please take the time to review the show over at Apple Podcasts. It does a great deal to help others discover the show, and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to iPad Pros.